you. And thank all of you for welcoming me to be here today again. This is a very special place for me, and I love coming back. It's the place where I began to really feel called to ministry. So thank you for being who you are, and for Jeff and your leadership and mentoring, which just goes on. Our scripture, as you can see in your bulletins, our reading is from Exodus, the 17th chapter, beginning with the first verse. The wilderness, from the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as God commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses, and they said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Holy One, your God? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to God, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Yahweh said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it, so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested God, saying, is the Holy One our God among us our, or not? This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Amen. And let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. <laughs> we all have our different ways of doing that. <laughs> Thank you for rolling with me on that one. <laughs> in, the, in the lead up, to this story, we see Moses and the people hitting a wall in their wandering. This is not the first time the Hebrew people have been exasperated with the hardship and the suffering that they face as they move through the desert. When they are hungry, they turn to Moses. Moses, why is there no meat? Did you bring us out here to starve? When they give up on meat, and they will take just about anything, it's Moses, why is there no bread? Moses. And there are some good sermons to be preached and that have been preached about how to keep faith when it looks like God does not hear us in our distress. When the thought crosses our mind, is God working against us or is God working for us? What do we do in those times? Where do you lean in those moments in your life? Moses doesn't really want to hear the cries of the people because he is fully aware that he doesn't have answers. On his own, he's got nothing. He, get, can't, he can get an audience with God, but that is about it. So he serves as this conduit. He talks to God, and in the morning, manna appears, that doughy stuff that takes care of their hungry, hunger. That had happened. One of the young men in uh, my husband's church last week after my husband preached about the manna 
This young man said to him, well, maybe the Israelites were right to protest, just like they do in our story this morning. Maybe they were right to protest, to complain. And yeah, that opens another window on this story. It really did for me, that God wants to hear from us. Think about it. Maybe, just maybe, God is as hungry and thirsty for us as we are hungry and thirsty for the food and the water that we need for life itself. What if that were the case? We often hear that God tests us. I've never really liked that a lot. I just don't feel that that's fair somehow. Maybe it is true that God tests us, but what if it's more accurate to say God tries and tries and tries to get our attention? If we have no water and our thirst is terrible, does God expect us to be silent? I don't think so. Moses may want us to be silent. I may want my child to stop crying so I can get some sleep if I'm a young mother, but what about God? It seems to me that God's magnificently weird response, having Moses strike a rock so hard that this water then pours out, and I think the hard, how hard he struck it is probably not really important, but just doing what this, what this setup for this scene is, it makes Moses look like a hero long enough to keep them from stoning him. It feels to me like this happened because the people did cry out and God's heart filled with compassion for them. God is learning about their pain. God is learning what it's like to be human. Relationships are always a two-way street. That applies to God the same way it applies to us. Meanwhile, Moses is showing signs of burnout, burnout toward God as well as toward the people who are getting more and more ornery. The honeymoon is over. Escaping from Egypt is, is over. The desert is real. The horizon looks endless with no Canaan in sight. They want different things, and God's intentions are not clear. So things are going sideways. Life is getting unpredictable, harder, more ambiguous and complicated. It's fair to say that Moses cannot meet all the people's needs and keep them happy, but he seems confused about that. And maybe that is something that all leaders face at one time or another, especially church leaders, clergy and lay church leaders. It's probably true that in the eyes of the people, Moses is God, but it's just not accurate. Moses is not God. God has given Moses some wonderful skills some great strengths and wisdom, but at some point the people have to grasp that it's not Moses who has freed them. God has freed them. God is leading them toward more freedom, and they have to participate. The future, freedom itself, is about more than following human leaders. The future is following this God who wants to get all in with people. Leaders will rise and fall, they will succeed and fail, but they are not meant to be substitutes for what God wants from every single one of us. Moses named the place where the water poured out Massah and Meribah. That can be translated despair and confusion. The people are knee-deep in despair and confusion. 
They're giving up, and they don't really even know what it is they're giving up on. All they know is what they desire and do not have. That is their desert. And haven't we all been there? I just want a job, God, or I want out of this job, God. I can't take it another day, or I want clarity about my life. I want my wife or my husband or my partner to get better. If only this child of mine could get sober and stay sober. I want to get out from under this debt. All the things. We know what it feels like when we want something so much we feel that we will perish if we don't get it. I read a beautiful article this week by Isaac Butler in Slate magazine entitled Transparent is the most profoundly Jewish show in TV history. Transparent is about a contemporary Jewish family going through the loss of all the familiar boundaries and definitions which have governed their cultural and domestic lives and identities for generations. The first jolt is when the father, who is transgender, comes out to his wife and three adult children as Mora. Mora's journey of discovering herself as a woman reverberates through this family of two daughters, a son, and an ex-wife. They all begin to question what they thought was solid about their own lives, their own identities. Butler says the family dynamics have a distinctively Jewish sensibility. To me, these stories invite others as well to find themselves in them somewhere. The Jewishness involves, to use Butler's word, too muchness, too muchness. Seeing the world with a, a surfeit of feeling. Feelings are just bubbling up always with a lot of drama, maybe a little too much intimacy, too much arguing. This family knows because of what they're going through, but they know because of also who they are, what it is to feel. And that in itself, he says, is very Jewish. Moses, are you trying to kill us? We're not just hungry. Are you trying to murder me here? I think it's fair to say that a lot of us can identify lately with this idea of a surfeit of feeling. I don't know about you, but I find myself experiencing a range of insistent emotions as I try to navigate the world that we have been in this past year, where we find ourselves. A lot of things are, are bubbling up everywhere. Frustration, anger, and yet also tremendous kindness. People trying to stay grounded in a time of chaos, not give in to the fear and toxic behavior that we're all seeing. I've been on sabbatical for a couple of months, and I've had the luxury of pulling away from some of that, although I'm still addicted to the news. It's something I have struggled with my whole adult life. I should stop reading, <laughs> at least for a while. But I have also been studying a young woman who lived right before the 20th century began. She died of tuberculosis in 1898 when she was 24, and she's had a huge impact on the world and continues to. She was made a saint only a couple of decades after she died, and she has been called by some the most popular saint of modern times. I'm speaking of Therese of Lisieux, or you may have heard of her as Saint Therese of the Child Jesus and the Holy Face. I became a little, more than a little fascinated by her 
a couple of years ago when I was on one of Jeff's pilgrimages, and since then I have been studying her life and her thought and asking, why? Why do I feel God calling me to explore what she may be saying to us now in these times? And what is it that she might be saying? How is she speaking to us? Today is actually her feast day in the Catholic Church, October 1st. She, uh, the anniversary of her death was September 30th, yesterday. And while Therese was raised in a very religious home with rules and traditions that were both spiritual and just part of her very close family, she broke away from it all, more than she ever intended to, when she entered a monastery at the age of 15, which was a very young age for nuns. She not only entered a monastery where she expected to devote her entire life to Jesus and to the church forever. She also encountered a profound crisis of faith. From her earliest days in the monastery, she found she did not have the strong and helpful sense of presence that she had known as a child and as a teenager. Things just began to shift. While she had once been prone to a surfeit of feeling about everything, and she was very kind of melodramatic as a, as a child, and expressed herself very strongly, she all of a sudden encountered a spiritual dryness as a young nun, almost right away, and it almost never left completely. It's not hard to imagine this, given the harshness of the lifestyle of her order. The Carmelites were completely removed from the world, from family, from hearth and home, the things that she loved. They were not a very cheery bunch. <laughs> And Therese struggled with difficult relationships, as you can, it was just 20 people living together all the time, and lots of judgment from others. She found the hours of prayer every day really difficult, and she often fell asleep during all these hours of prayer, and she would be criticized. She was an independent thinker, though she had to keep much of her thinking to herself. And as time went on, and she tried to manage the expectations of others while being true to her strong strong inner sense of guidance. She still had this conviction of her call. Her vocation was so strong. But she did feel cut off sometimes and suffered, even as she tried so hard to love and to serve. John of the Cross, who described the dark night of the soul this way in his writing, became her spiritual mentor throughout his writing, through his writing. And in response, to this suffering, Therese devoted herself more and more and more to trusting what she believed. Even though she could find very little consolation a lot of the time, she trusted that the love of God was more real than all of her difficulties, that she could cling to it, and that Jesus thirsted for her love. And she trusted that God's mercy would and, would and could overcome everything, including her failings. God's love overshadowed every fault, every problem, every failing. She began to devote herself to a kind of simplicity, which reminds me of what we call mindfulness today. She looked at every challenge as an invitation to return to God. She acted as if. As another saint once said, as if all is well. She believed that all would be well, as Julian said. 
even though she had no way of intellectually knowing that or seeing it in front of her. And what happened is that as she matured and grew in a few short years into a deep understanding of the journey that we all must make through the desert of the things that we think we know, the desert of the things we think we need and want, she understood the thing that we cannot fully know or control at all, ever, which is the heart and the beauty and the glory of God, known and revealed in Jesus Christ. Therese took her own suffering, her sense of being in the desert, and made it into a way, a way of living, focusing not on herself but on living for others, whoever they were. And she acted out those words, Lord, may I decrease that you may increase. The smallest daily trials became invitations to trust for her. And when it was clear that she was dying, her greatest wish was to spend her eternity right here with us, helping us to love God and each other and all of creation. And I believe that she's doing that. Now, Therese had a special love for the Eucharist. So it's wonderful that her feast day coincides with World Communion Sunday. When she was a nun, monasteries had moved away from a frequent celebration of communion, and her mother superior seemed to enjoy withholding communion sometimes from the nuns at Lisieux. But Therese fought for more frequent celebrations of Christ's presence among us through communion. And a few days after her death, a new priest came to the Carmel where she had been and delivered his first sermon, and it was entitled, Come and Eat My Bread. Within a very short time, he had established, reestablished daily communion. Much, much to her credit. Jesus calls to us through time, through the lives of the saints, through the lives of other spiritual leaders and mentors in your lives, people on both sides of the veil, come and eat my bread. It is our assurance in the deserts of our lives that Christ is alive everywhere and at this table and in our bodies. Christ is alive in every tear that we shed as we try to learn to love each other, whoever and wherever we are. Christ is here in this community. I know it because I experienced it and do again, and I am grateful to you all for keeping this community alive and flourishing, teaching and thriving and blessing. So let us come and celebrate together. Come and eat the bread which Jesus provides. It is the bread of life for all.